0: to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the
1: stock market each day.
0: I'm your host, Emily Flippin.
1: I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today, we're talking financials.
0: Today, we're talking consumer goods.
1: Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today, we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, May 17th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On this week's financial show, we're going to dig into Upstart's most recent quarterly results. We'll talk a little bit more about what's going on in the line of consumer credit that investors will want to be aware of. Uh, apparently, companies are flush with cash and ready to buy back some shares. We'll tackle a listener question. We'll also have one to watch for you this week. So, we got a very, very full agenda. And when we have a really full agenda, there's only one man. There's only one man with the ability to take on such a full agenda. It's certified financial planner, Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Well,
0: t- to be fair, I think there are others who could fill in, and they have. <laughs> but I'm always happy to be here. Uh,
1: nah, no, 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 one reaching that level that, that you've set for us. You set the high bar here, Matt. You know, we're, <laughs> we're always uh, always very proud of that. I'm still um, I'm still
0: a surprised every week when I'm asked asked to come back. Well, I'm grateful that you say yes. <laughs>
1: Matt uh let'll open up the show here this week and talk a little bit about another earnings uh, report that just came out recently a company that we've talked about a little bit on the show here and one that you follow um, upstart uh, tell us what stood
0: out to you in uh, their most recent quarter yeah well this is a stock that investors have pretty high hopes on I mean it's it's doubled in the past few months even before earnings um, remember we talked about um, we, we did a deep dive into upstart on the show. They're primarily a personal lender. They use kind of proprietary technology. They focus on the subprime area of the market, um, trying to do a better job of underwriting loans for borrowers with lower traditional credit scores than most others do. And it's been the results have been pretty good so far. They're just getting into the auto lending space now, so that's their most promising area going forward. Um, but just to kind of recap this quarter, which was still primarily personal lending. Um, revenue was up 90% year over year 90% and that's during a pandemic with decreased loan demand from most it, that most banks are reporting if you remember that was a big theme in our bank earnings episode was that loan demand has kind of shrunk people people have more cash there's less need to borrow there's less they're doing less these days you know per, the personal lending space is, has declined overall so that's what makes that even more impressive that was about 5 million dollars above expectations um, origination by Upstart's lending partners. It does it, it. partners with banks who make loans using its platform. More than doubled year over year to 170,000 loans on the platform. Total of about 100, $1.7 billion borrowed. Um, some really impressive stats from a long term perspective here. Uh, conversions on rate requests. That means if you go to Upstart's platform, you know how it says you could check your rate without your credit score, things like that. So. Conversions on those, you know, the people who request a rate and actually become a customer and get a loan, have increased from 14% of the rate requests to 22% over the past year. That's a big increase in conversion. That's that's really impressive from a long-term perspective. Margins are better, adjusted EPS, not only were positive, which, in the fintech world, just saying they're profitable, it's usually enough of a, a qualifier. Well, I was
1: going to say, I was looking through their financials here and I did a double take because I was like, wait a minute, they're actually profitable. It just seems like so many of these newfangled businesses haven't quite gotten there yet, but I, it seems to me, i mean, Upstart, it seems like, hey, they're there and, and probably don't have to worry about that going forward,
0: I yes, guess, they're, right? They're, they're, they're worrying about how to grow their profits, not just be, make, get a path to profitability. Well, that's nice. Uh, <laughs> it is in in the second quarter, they're expecting 28% growth, not year over year. they're expecting 28% quarterly growth. So compared to what they did in the first quarter, um, they increased their full year guidance from 500 million dollars in revenue to 600 million dollars. That's a big jump. That is a big jump. Um, and remember this was primarily based on just personal lending. This does not really show the potential in their auto lending business. So they've proven their concept that they can do a better job than the traditional bank models of underwriting personal loans to the to the subprime borrowers. Now they're going to try to replicate that in the auto market, which subprime auto loans are a big consumer issue these days. Um, you know, it's it's not uncommon for I mean the the uh, last week tonight with John Oliver did a whole episode on it. <laughs> um, if you if you ever if you have a chance, go back. It's worth a watch. Um, but there, there are people who are paying 20%, 25% for auto loans because they can't qualify through traditional bank lenders. Um, this is a big addressable market that is really overpaying, being abused by lenders, quite frankly, that Upstart is trying to go after and just do a better job and give them competitive loan rates. Now, someone with in the subprime realm is going to pay more than someone with an 800 credit score. That's That's a given. Does it need to be 20 25% if they've never been never defaulted on a loan before? No. So that's something that Upstart really is trying to do better and they're doing a really good job of it so far. What
1: about I wonder it's it's an interesting point you make on the the subprime auto loans and I wonder because you know we're at this we're at this period of time where um The used car market is is really is is really strong, right? I mean, there there is a with semiconductor shortage. I mean, there are automakers uh, around the world who are witnessing supply chain crunches, um, and and that is translating into ultimately supply chain crunches for the very cars that they produce, and that is ultimately uh, reflected in a stronger used car market. Do you feel like? that's part of the calculus here? I mean, is, is, is that part of what's going on? Or do you have folks going out there looking to buy a used car, it's such a tight market, they're having to pay more to get those cars. And On top of that, then you feel like lenders out there feel like they can even just take a little bit more advantage of a situation where Upstart perhaps sees that as an opportunity to do a little bit more right by the customer. I
0: mean, that- let me, let me apologize for the, from the start for t- whoever's listening that's a used car dealer. <laughs> it's tough to imagine the used car industry being worse to subprime borrowers than they have been for the past like ten, twenty years. It's been just we, I, on the the um, the last week tonight show that I just mentioned, there was an example of a of the same car that had been sold and repossessed to three different subprime borrowers <laughs> the same car. Oh my and it, so they're giving them these big loans that have like, like i said 20 sometimes up to 30 percent interest rates so people are paying you know the same that, that a, a regular borrower would on like a fifty thousand dollar car to have these kind of these used kind of lower end cars and it's just it's killing them financially and, and so the, it just leads to the cycle of repossessions and bad credit and there, there's a lot of room to do it better. It's really tough to overstate how bad that market is. Um, we've talked about markets that have a lot of consumer consumer pain points, like um, life insurance is one that we've talked about on the show. The, the subprime, subprime auto lending market is one that just really needs a complete overhaul for the good of consumers. Um, and and the, whatever company, some have tried. There, there have been subprime lenders before that have tried to do a better job. No one has been able to succeed yet, and and if Upstart can, they have in the personal lending space. So if they can translate that to the auto lending space, there's a, I mean, subprime auto lending is is a several hundred hundred billion dollar market. So I mean, it's this is a big market we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like basically a two pronged strategy that could really help them succeed. Number one, making sure that their their AI is providing them with the best data to help them make the best informed decisions. And then also, it's just having the, having the desire to just do, do right by the customer, right? do a little bit better than perhaps what you're seeing as the norm. Because, yeah, I mean, for a lot of folks, that they have limited resources and then they're going out to try to get a car, they just don't have a lot of choices. And when you don't have a lot of choices, you become a desperate buyer uh, and you know how that goes.
0: Right. And to be fair, a lot of it's not the lender's fault. There's just no good way to underwrite that subset of the population. So they you know, they're taking on risk, they don't have to. The idea with Upstart is if they can say, take the people with the sub six fifty credit scores and narrow it down to the subset that isn't going to default, then their bar their customers, the banks they partner with, can make, you know, three, four times as many loans without increasing their loss rate. And meanwhile, pass that savings onto the customer by not charging him insane interest rates. So it, it's just it's it's a win win for the banks. It's a win win for upstart and the and the customers. So you know, like it's an industry just really needs an overhaul, and there's just no good way to do it yet. Well, speaking of.
1: Overhauls in the credit industry. There's another interesting headline that came out here recently. Uh, some of the the biggest banks out there, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, U.S. Bank, or more, um, are are looking at new ways to get consumers credit, even though those consumers may not necessarily have uh, a, a credit score to to help sort of guide that decision and, and to guide limits and rates. Um, and, and these banks are, are looking at using other financial data to do that. Now, I think this is something we talked about on the show a, a number of months back when we we saw that that FICA was going to be revamping the way they calculate their scores. We were looking at at new ways credit was was going to be um, to be offered. But this really does seem like these banks are, are are very interested in leveraging a lot of the data that they already have. Uh, in order to be able to make uh, well-informed decisions. And, and honestly, to me, I mean, this makes a lot of sense. I mean, if, if, if you're going on data that you already have, if you're going on history, um, I mean, in theory, these banks should have a lot of, of, of relevant data that should, should help them make I think well-informed decisions. I, I mean, I don't know. I think this is one more way, at least, to help get people started uh, that didn't exist before. I mean, I remember, I remember a time ago. I mean, when I worked at the bank, I remember folks coming in. The only way they could even remotely have a chance at establishing a credit uh, score was to get something like a secured credit card. Right? Like you'd have to put down two hundred and fifty or five hundred dollars a deposit to get your credit card, essentially a secured loan. Um, it, folks like that, I mean, you didn't have 250 or $500 just to drop at a whim. So, I don't know, I mean, to me, this this does seem like it has a lot of promise if it's executed.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I, I, the one you were referring to was called the Ultra FICO score. Yeah. Um, yeah. And <laughs> to be fair, that was kind of a flop. Um, we, we, we learned that not only did very few lenders ever pick that up, no banks have, have embraced the Ultra FICO model. Um, So, that was a bit of a, eh, it didn't really work out the way for the FICO people had planned it. Now, having said that, a lot of Americans think that every adult in the U.S. has a credit score. I mean, I think I thought that until I became a financial planner. Um, (laughs) To get a credit score, you have to have at least one reporting account within the past six months to your credit file. You know how many people don't have that? I
1: I, I would I mean, I don't know the number, but I would venture to say it's probably a good half, <laughs> a good half the population. Uh,
0: fifty-three million adults. Yeah, that's not so, all. That that's a broad. lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and it dis- this is it that fifty-three million disproportionately includes minorities. So that's a big part of why the government is really backing this plan to try to level the playing field a little bit. Um, as you mentioned, a bunch of banks have signed on to this plan: J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, etc. Uh, and you want to reach consumers that don't have traditional borrowing opportunities based on credit scoring, because if you don't have a credit history, a lot of lenders won't talk to you, um, unfortunately. So right now it's considering things like consumers' um, savings accounts and you know balance history and overdraft history, you know, a record of responsible behavior. This could eventually include things like rent payments, Utilities. They're, they're trying to partner with a lot of different sources to provide, to, to kind of come up with an alternate credit model. The, the, kind of what FICO was trying to do a few years ago, but really wasn't able to get traction on. And if they can do that, I mean, you have to walk the tight line between that really effectively becoming a credit score and, and excluding people. Um, because in most cases you need credit to get an apartment to have a rental history for example <laughs> you need credit to get i mean i needed to have my credit run when we established an electric service here i'm sure you guys did too um so you you want it's a, it's you want to be able to get as much data to really give an accurate picture as possible without the unintended consequence of excluding even more people because they don't have those things um but no this is obviously a good thing get you know, democratizing the financial system is really is what we've been talking about with all these fintech disruptors on here um you you want to bring inclusivity into the financial system and anything that does that I'm I'm all in favor of yeah I'm,
1: I'm right there with you I mean to me that's this feels like another Avenue and and what's more it feels like another Avenue that's actually pretty well thought out because I mean a lot of these uh, these these big banks they they have a ton of 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 data at their disposal. I mean, all relevant, real time, real life data of bills paid and money going in and out. So, I mean, I I feel like there's a lot of potential with something like this. Um, and in in yeah, I mean, to your point, with with that large a percentage of the adult population here not even having that that one asset, and I'll call that an asset because that's I've, I've taught our girls, my daughters, I've, I've said, listen, one thing that's going to come up as you get older you're going to get a credit score, and you need to protect that thing with your life, because it opens up a lot of doors. Um, It gives you a lot of opportunities that you might not have otherwise. And it can be a little bit difficult to get started, because as you said, uh, in order to have a credit score, you know, you got to have some sort of a history to go on, but you got to get that history started. And oftentimes, to get that history started, you need a credit score. Um, But this, to me, it it does seem like it's... um, it, it's something right in line with the evolution of the of the finance space, the banking space, how money's moving uh, from point A to point B. Um so hopefully, yeah, to your point it's it's a little bit more um a little bit more well received than the uh what was it, the the ultra FICO, FICO Ultra. Yeah. yeah. And I mean
0: in the there's it, there's a clear problem here. Like, consider like, have you ever gone to apply for a job and they said you need experience before we'll hire you? But how do you get experience if you don't get a job? And it's kind of like that—that that, you know, it's it's an unsolvable problem for a lot of people. Like, I want to apply for a credit credit card, okay? But you don't have any credit. Well, that's why I want a credit card to get credit, and it—you know—it just. Well, it, we're sorry, it, we can't help you. <laughs> right, and, and and it's just like like, how do you get out of that loop? Yeah, yeah, um, stuff. I mean, they're secured credit cards, but even that is
1: well. That's just that's not, such it, a. That's a difficult hurdle.
0: Yeah, they're, they're they're good products if you can get one and and have the money to put up for one. But it's not really democratizing the financial system. It's creating an extra hurdle for a group of people. I mean, and to be, I used a secured credit card to establish credit years ago. Um, and they're great products, but I would have preferred if people would just take a look at my bank information and my rent history and. And see that I'm a pretty responsible individual. it It so.
1: seems very lo- it seems very logical. So hopefully we'll see some uh, some progress on this front because I do I do believe that could open up a lot of doors for a lot of people who are who are deserving. Um, so yeah, definitely something to pay attention to. Uh, another thing to pay attention to and something that is really starting to gain some steam here. Um, after a year of playing defense, it does feel like a lot of these companies are—they're seeing a little bit more light at the end of the tunnel, feeling like we—we've really turned a corner here. Um, in and, and as such, uh, a lot of these companies are starting to spend more on dividends, and they're—they're especially—they're really starting to buy back more of their stock than they have been over the last uh, year or so. Um, it feels like. Stock buybacks are neither right nor wrong. They just are, and we can just discuss whether you like them or hate them until the end of time. Uh, but I mean, what do you think when you see news like this? I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's one part of me that wishes companies would would take this money f- that they're using for buybacks and figure out new ways to invest that cash. But by the same token, you know. Those 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 investment opportunities aren't aren't always so obvious, and they don't grow
0: on trees. Yeah, and I mean, theoretically, a buyback should be a great use of a company's cash if they're doing right by their shareholders. Um, the idea is you want to buy your shares back at a value that's less than the intrinsic value of the business. This is what Warren Buffett always says. Um, so if they could do that, that's great. I don't want to get in a giant philosophical debate over whether buybacks are good or bad, <laughs> because. They can be good or bad. Yes, there are. B- yeah. I mean, if if your only purpose with buybacks is to to boost your share price or to boost your earnings over time, which in a lot of cases that's what happens, um, then they're bad. If if you're doing, if you're making a, a real effort to buy back more shares when your stock's cheap and less when it's expensive and really kind of create shareholder value with it, then it, from an investor's point of view, it's good. Um, we're we are seeing a lot lately. Um, over half a trillion dollars in buybacks were authorized already in 2021. Wow, that's the most in 22 years. Holy cow! Um, I mean, a, a lot of it was Apple. Apple Apple authorized a 90 billion dollar increase to its buyback already this year. Um, that was almost a fifth of it. That um, a lot of companies are, have are sitting on a lot of cash because, and it's not that they've been hoarding cash for a bad reason. It's they they a lot of them pumped the brakes on on buybacks during COVID. A lot of them stopped, you know, acquiring new businesses. A lot of them stopped capital spending, things like that. And same thing that's happening with American consumers. If you've seen, remember from our bank earnings that savings rates are through the roof as well. Um, you know, same thing that consumers are doing because it was a responsible behavior at the time last year, given the uncertainty. But now uncertainty, as we you know rambled on about at the beginning of the show with the face mask things going away. You know the uncertainty is is declining. There's really no way to to dispute that. So now companies are saying, "Hey, we don't need these giant cash stockpiles. We can get back to business as usual and maintain a reasonable amount of cash to have a cushion, but we can put the rest of it to work." And shareholders want dividends. Shareholders want buybacks. Of course, if there are better opportunities on the table, acquisitions can be a great way to spend money. But if not, shareholders want that capital. A lot of that capital return. That's, I mean, you you see activist fights over over lack of a dividend policy. I mean, (laughs) it's 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 not it's not rare that you know big shareholders will step in and say, wait, 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 you got to pay us now.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, and to your point, I mean, dividends are lovely because they're cash in the pocket. Um. But that that always seems to come at a little bit of a price. I mean, I look at two two glaring examples. And you and I, you and I were were talking back and forth uh, on Twitter earlier today about this. And, and you look at companies like AT and T and Verizon um, over the last five years. And I mean, two companies that are that are very well known for. High and consistent dividend yields, right? They have that opportunity to be able to provide that high yield because they're relatively, they're being their utilities essentially, right? So they have a reliability in the business model that allows them to, to continue to pay those dividends. Um, but, but that doesn't necessarily translate into stellar returns for investors. You look at over the last five years, uh, between the S and P and AT and T and Verizon, I mean AT and Verizon, you've made money off of those investments, but the, but the total return prices, so that incorporates dividends uh, and everything. I mean the total re- return price. Th- those two companies are are well trailing the S and P by 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 a lot, and so the dividends are great, but. You still probably would have been better off just being invested in the s and p and and then conversely, I mean, when it comes to share repurchases, uh, obviously you want to make sure that those repurchases are actually bringing that share count down. Um, I, I think in today's day and age with a lot of these new companies coming public, a lot of tech based companies, you know and they they give out some of that some of those shares as compensation early on because it's it's a way to afford to afford that that work. Um, th- those repurchases don't really have that impact on that share count. You look at Apple, the example that you brought up earlier. I mean, Apple, with all of the repurchases that they've been making over the last several years, since 2016, their share count's down better than 20%. So that's having a real impact on that outstanding share account, which would make everyone's share a little bit more valuable at the end of the day. So just a couple of things to keep in mind there in regard to... Um, Sherry purchases and dividends and yeah like you said we could probably sit here and have a philosophical debate about it for an hour and at the end of the day i mean never really come to a firm conclusion could we
0: well i'm i'm glad you brought up AT&T for a second there <laughs> okay um as you know it's one of my biggest stock holdings i would go so far as to say that if they that buybacks have not been the problem. If they had taken the money they spent on DirecTV and <laughs> warner media and had used that to buy back shares, we I'd be in a much better position right now. A little bit of a different situation. It, yep. I, with them it's been a capital spending problem and not a buyback and dividend problem. Their buybacks and dividends have been great moves. Um if they, if they like I would have rather them taking the 85 billion dollars they spent on warner media and and giving it back to shareholders instead. Well, um, if it's if it's, but, if
1: it's any help, I mean, I think in I think in hindsight, they're kind of wishing that too, Matt. So, based on the news today, well, rem- be, remember uh, when
0: remember when the Trump administration was trying to block that merger? They yes. should have said thanks yep. and just walked away. Yep, that's right. <laughs> they, they that's right. That's. <laughs> That one didn't work out so
1: well, but I guess we'll uh, we'll see how that that new that new company uh, that new combination fares. And, and ultimately, I do think uh, for you as an AT and T shareholder, hopefully, better days are yet to come. I think this gives them a chance to really uh, get focused on what they they know how to do well, um, and that is connect. Connect people and, and really more and more connect things. Uh, well, as, they, as they certainly don't out. need to
0: be spending time on making acquisitions, I'll tell you that.
1: Agreed.
0: <laughs> Agreed. Well, Matt,
1: you know, from time to time we like to take listener questions and we always get some really fun ones to discuss. And we got a good question here on Twitter the other day. This comes from Preston at 10 Vance. Preston asks, How do you measure valuation of a SPAC stock? Once the merger has been announced, and it's in the de spacking process. Uh, and as an example, he says, I'm looking at IPOE with SoFi specifically. Uh, Matt, we talk about SoFi here on the show, uh, and, and that's a company you know that you're following. Uh, what do you think here about Preston's question? How do you look, what's your perspective on evaluation of stacks once, with Spacks once that merger has been announced?
0: So What SoFi does better than its competition, think of who its competition is. You have Robinhood on the investing side, you have Kind of the legacy lenders on the the on the loan side, you know. So what do they do better? They're with Robinhood. We've discussed many times that they. SoFi just does a better job of prioritizing investing, educating the consumer. They do. They make the lending process a lot easier than the competitors on the loan side. They do the best job of any financial company I know of of creating a sense of community, of creating kind of customer loyalty, if you will. So. That's really that's one of the big things I look at. I look at the the total market opportunity, which I mean, investing is clearly a giant market opportunity. But they're getting into some forms of lending, like you know, auto lending. I've mentioned is an eight hundred billion dollar market. Um, personal lending is about a two hundred billion dollar market at last count. So there's there's a bunch of big market opportunities there. I think they do things better than the competition. Um, the revenue, the current revenue, which is actual numbers, not their projections. The current revenue looks impressive, and the current growth numbers look impressive. Um, and a, a, another example, twenty-three and Me is one I've talked about on the show. Um, I just—they just do what they do better than the competition. They have a bigger co- nec- collection of consumer genetic information than anyone else. Um, they, they're partnering with one of the biggest names in the business to develop uh, therapeutics based on that information. You know, big competitive advantages like that. It's kind of like the Buffett model. When Warren Buffett describes why he likes a stock, he doesn't go into a bunch of numbers. He describes the the moat, the competitive advantages, and that's yeah kinda, why he likes the business, right? And that's really yeah. what I look at when evaluating some of these SPACs is 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 what gives them the moat, and what will give them the moat, and what will be able to build a durable market share because a lot of them are small with very little revenue yet.
1: Yeah. 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 Hopefully right that was a,
0: that was a decent answer.
1: Well, I think it's I think it's, a, I think it's a, it was a decent answer. I think it's about as fair as you can be because it really is more art than science. I mean, you say valuation is in many cases as much art as it is science, and and that's when you're dealing with something like. Apple or Coca-Cola, right? I mean, something a little bit easier to 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 grasp because the numbers are there and you can make some reasonable projections. But so many of these SPACs, I mean, these are businesses that are coming public far earlier than they ever did before, or they ever could have before, um, and and that just makes it inherently more difficult to value, to be able to plug a number. Into a model with confidence. And so I think that just to your point, it becomes really even that much more important to, to be able to get a grip on the business, right? To get a grasp on what they're trying to do, what type of a business this is, what are the advantages, is there a moat, what. What gives them that long-term uh, opportunity at at sustainability and growth? So uh, I think that was that was a good, that's a good way to look at it.
0: Yeah, and, and most of them are very speculative. So I also look at them as things I'm going to put a tiny bit into now and see how it goes. And you know, I'm never going to really go all in on a SPAC before we really get a look at the numbers and how it's doing as an actual public company.
1: Yeah. Did you see uh, real quickly before we before we wrap up with ones to watch? Did you see the news today? It sounds like Redbox is going to be going public via SPAC. Really? Like Redbox, the DVD, like the DVD that you company at like a CVS or a Walgreen. Yeah, apparently, apparently they're going to go. Apparently, I mean, is is Blockbuster go public going public too? <laughs> I'm not sure. I have to look that up after we get done taping. Sorry to any just... Redbox fan. I mean, I
0: like Redbox as a as a product. Yeah, but yeah. I would I would never want to invest in. I wouldn't buy one if if it was like a franchise or anything.
1: I don't think I would either. I just uh, just caught my attention this morning. I'd, I'd probably
0: buy WeWork before Redbox. Oh
1: man, have you seen that WeWork documentary on Hulu? No, I haven't. Cannot recommend it highly enough. It was so <laughs> so so good. Uh, And and that goes for all listeners uh, out there. If you have an investing bone in your body, then you will enjoy watching that documentary on Hulu. The WeWork documentary is just, it's amazing, the stuff that went on there. Um, And what's even more amazing is that they still have an opportunity to go public again, albeit under different leadership, but uh, very, very eye-opening documentary. I highly recommend it. Uh, Matt, speaking of recommendations, well, we're not going to make any formal recommendations here as far as stocks go. We do like to shine light on a couple of stocks we're watching this week. Uh, what is your one to watch for this coming week?
0: Well, if you remember, all of these mortgage companies that have gone public in the past year or so, and I've really kind of had a, a skeptical tone about them. You know, the mortgage—it's been a great. Everyone's refinancing, of course. The numbers look great, things like that. So. Now I'm, i There's one that's just announced they're going public through SPAC, of course, because it's you know it's 2021, so that's how you go public these year, these <laughs> days. Um, it's it's called Better. It used to just be called Better Mortgage. Now it's just called Better. They're going public through a merger with a company called Aurora Acquisition. Ticker symbol is A U R C. Well,
1: sounds cool.
0: Um, I used Better to refinance my my home and couldn't have had a better experience. That's not just why, That's not why I'm interested. Um, not because I'm a customer they really deliver on their claims. They aim to take the whole mortgage process online. They close their average loan in 21 days. Their industry average is 42. Um that's a pretty impressive. they close loans in as little as two weeks. They do everything online. Um like I said you can't really you can't really take put too much stock into the growth that they're you know their 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 loan volume uh, grew 490% last year. That's a that's because everybody was refinancing and they specialize in refinancing. Um I think you I think I remember you saying you refinanced, I refinanced, oh, everyone yeah. refinanced. Yeah, absolutely. Um they also provide services like title insurance, homeowners insurance. They aim to take everything into like a one stop portal. Um the the word is really getting out on them. They do a I mean as the name implies, they just do a better job. I did everything online. The only time I had to interact with a person was when the closing attorney showed up at my house. Um, it was such a smooth process. I've in my lifetime, including investment properties, I've obtained about about a dozen mortgages. This was the smoothest process by far. Um, so I'm watching them. They're backed by SoftBank. they they have some pretty impressive backing. Uh, the deal values them at seven point seven billion, which is toward the high end of mortgage. Um, Originators, but not, I mean, Rocket Mortgage is a bigger company than they are. Um, so I think they have a, a big opportunity. And not just the um, online aspect is great for customers, it also means higher margins potentially. Same reason that online banks produce higher margins than like a Wells Fargo or JP Morgan. Um, so that's a, a recent SPAC IPO that didn't really pop that much after the announcement, um, probably on valuation concerns, if anything. Um, but that's one that I'm keeping an eye on just because out of all the mortgage lenders that we've talked about that have gone public, there's been Rocket, there's been United Wholesale, there's been a bunch of them. Um this is the by far the most disruptive of them. So that's why I'm keeping an eye on it. All
1: right, good deal. What's the ticker for that again?
0: It is AURC. I want to make sure A-U-R-C. I get that right too. AURC, that's right. Aurora Acquisition.
1: There you go. Um okay, well, housing related, I'm going to keep I'm going to keep an eye on something that, that is Housing related, but a little bit differently. But I'm gonna I'm gonna be watching Home Depot, uh, ticker HD. Earnings are out tomorrow morning, Tuesday, May 18th. They'll be out, um, and you know, you look at Home Depot. It's had a really good year to date thus far. Uh, I'm going to be very curious to hear their language on the call, though, regarding things like inflation, their take on the housing market, the state of the consumer. Uh, and, and honestly, lumber <laughs> has really got my attention these days for a number of different reasons. But it's just really, we've seen this real pivot in lumber. Um, they, they were noting, even management was noting in, the, in their third quarter call as they exited the third quarter, that lumber prices were falling sharp, uh, sharply off historic highs. But then in the fourth quarter, that pricing really reversed course and then set new near-term highs. And it does seem like that, Pressure has has remained like lumber prices right now are just through the roof, and and so while that's that's not something that's going to be fatal for Home Depot, obviously they sell a ton of stuff and, and, and you know lumber is a big part of it, but it is worth noting. Uh, you were talking there earlier about margins. I mean, with, with Home Depot, that that mixed pressure from lumber can can impact their margins in the near term a little bit, at least just something worth keeping an eye on. Um, if, if if for some reason there were some margin concerns that then impacted forecast or, or estimates or whatnot. I mean, maybe maybe you see an opportunity to pick up uh, shares of what is obviously very w- a very well-run business uh, for a little bit cheaper. But it looks like it less than thirty times earnings today. Nice two percent dividend yield. Uh, it, it, it's got a lot of, of different ways it can win. I think um, seems to do well in good weather and bad because they they help us uh, deal <laughs> with both good weather and bad. So looking forward to that report in the morning. Uh, But, Matt, I think that is going to do it for us this week. I appreciate you taking the time to jump on here and, uh, as always, be such a a valuable part of the show for us. Always happy to be here. Well, remember, folks, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at mfindustryfocus, or you can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.